Hello, this is Doug Hooley, your host on the Called Out Cafe podcast. I hope today finds you well. The topic of this series is that of the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. This is episode number eight in the series. I ended the last episode by saying that in this episode we'd be talking about the rebellions that have occurred and will occur in the heavenly realm. That's true, but today I'm going to focus on one significant rebellion in particular. It's a rebellion that led to a race of giants and contributed greatly as to why God wiped out most of all the world's population with the flood. Genesis chapter 6 records a strange, you know, weird, (laughs) but important story which is necessary to understand if we want to understand much of what occurred in the rest of the Old Testament. Being bizarre, Enlightenment rationalism-driven theologians have tried hard to naturalize it and explain it away. I'll try here to make a case that the majority of the ancients understood what happened as recorded in Genesis 6, literally. I'll briefly comment towards the end on alternative views of the passage. Here's the scripture I'm talking about. This is Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Well, many believe the story of the Nephilim is over and done with in four little verses here that I just read, and it leaves us with the impossible task of understanding what's being said, what's going on there. However, the story which starts in Genesis chapter 6 is ongoing until a giant named Goliath and other members of his giant family are slayed in 1 Chronicles chapter 20. The story even reverberates into the New Testament with the actions of Jesus. And the Apostle Peter and Jude referred to the story in their letters. This is not a simple little weird side note in Genesis. This is the beginning of a long story about how God deals with rebellion in the heavenly realm. We've already talked about the order of angels referred to as the sons of God, the Bani Elohim. The face value traditional interpretation of Genesis 6 is that the sons of God, or the angelic beings God had created, left the unseen realm and physically manifested themselves as humans. However, rather than only deceiving human women like the serpent had done with Eve, these angelic beings had sex with them. This is the widest held interpretation of both Christian and Jew from at least the intertestamental period, the period between the Old and New Testaments, when the Septuagint was written, through the time of Jesus and his apostles. It remained the overwhelming predominant interpretation within Christianity for at least 300 years, up until the time when the spiritualization of Scripture began to challenge the interpretation, the literal interpretation. 
I'll discuss the physical capabilities of supernatural beings in a later podcast. But for now, the simple read of this passage is when these angelic beings entered the world in fleshy human form, they had the ability to have sex and impregnate human women. The results were a hybrid new race of people, a race apart and different from the natural human race that the Most High God, Yahweh, had created. The product of the union between man and supernatural beings were a hybrid race called the Nephilim. To make sure there's no confusion, the Nephilim is the name of the offspring of the sons of God and daughters of men. Nephilim is not what the sons of God are referred to as. They are the original sons of the sons of God. The Nephilim, the descendants of the Son of God, continued to take wives and have children. This was an unnatural hybrid race. Again, I'll say it, apart from the descendants of Adam and Eve. This line played a large part in the early days of the Hebrews. The descendants of the Nephilim continued to vex the Hebrews until the kingdom period when they appear to have been finally exterminated. Myths grew up around the Nephilim and their descendants in other cultures. Josephus tells us that they are responsible for at least some Greek mythology. In the view of many ancient cultures, this race, the Nephilim, was brought about by other gods, Elohim, than Yahweh. Most notably, the Greeks believed this. Their demigods, the product of the union of the gods and humans, were also known as men of renown. Hercules, for example, the son of a god and a human woman, possessed superhuman strength and stature. So, does this mean that I believe in Greek mythology? Of course, no. But like the Mesopotamian flood account, the Epic of Gilgamesh, some mythology may contain components of Old Testament truth as viewed from a pagan perspective. Just as you would expect from men of renown, the Nephilim and their unnatural line of descendants were all well known in the region by many different people. Within the Old Testament itself, they're known by different names by different people. The most often used name is the Rephaim. The Rephaim probably comes from the proper name of Rapha, which in some translations of the ESV, the English Standard Version, it's translated as giant. The Nephilim were also known as the sons of Anak, or the Anakim. Anak is said to have descended from the Nephilim. You can read about that in the book of Numbers, chapter, 30, uh, see, chapter 13, verse 33. The Ammonites called the descendants of the Nephilim the Zamzumim. The Moabites called them Emim. When you understand all of the various names of this hybrid race of people, you start to see them in a significant portion of the Old Testament. If I wanted to here, I could list for you at least 16 different references in the Old Testament where the Emim are mentioned alone. Well, Just before the Israelites began to leave the wilderness and head for the Promised Land, they sent in spies into the land. These spies spotted the Nephilim, also known as the Sons of Anak. Listen to this from the book of Numbers, chapter 13, verses 32 to 33. 
So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Like Goliath, the Nephilim were known by their great height and strength. The average height of a normal human man of the region during this period was five to five and a half feet tall. Although the Masoretic text state that Goliath was nine to ten feet tall, Dead Sea Scrolls manuscripts placed Goliath more like around six to six and a half feet tall. That's still quite tall or giant compared to the average Israelite of that day. Goliath's spear was said to resemble a weaver's rod and weighed around 15 pounds. Compare that to a Roman spear that weighed between 4 and 11 pounds. That's at least 30% larger than a normal spear. So these were big guys, not necessarily 9 to 10 feet tall, but still giant by normal person standards of that day. Also notice in this passage that the land of the Nephilim was a land that devours its inhabitants. That's right. At least some of the descendants of the Nephilim were probably cannibals. This is consistent with the pseudographic book of Enoch, which made a claim that the Nephilim, quote, devoured one another's flesh and drank blood from it, unquote. The Old Testament is a book containing a great deal of gory violence. God ordered the people of Israel to kill a lot of other people. Many assume that this is only because those people were worshiping false gods. But maybe you've noticed in the Old Testament that God did not always command the Israelites to kill everyone in their past, despite their worshiping other gods besides Him. That being the case, Yahweh was quite concerned with the complete extermination of the unnatural line descending from the sons of the fallen angels. The Israelites wiped out the descendants of the Nephilim, per God's instructions, as they left the Sinai and traveled north towards the Promised Land. The last of the Rephaim they dealt with east of the Jordan River were the Rephaim living in the land of Bashan, which is located close to Mount Hermon. King Og (laughs) was the king of Bashan. He was a giant and a direct descendant of the Nephilim. His bed was said to be made of iron and was about 13 feet long and 6 feet wide. Og ruled over Mount Hermon. (laughs) I just like the name Og, King Og. Anyway, he ruled over Mount Hermon. That's a place that's associated with great evil. There are really, really good reasons to believe that Mount Hermon is the mountain which the sons of God came down from just before they took for themselves the daughters of humans to lay with. It's probably Mount Hermon that's referred to in Psalm 68.15 as the mountain of Elohim, or the mountain of gods. That's called the mountain of Bashan in Psalm 68.15. The mountain plays a significant part in other cultures' ancient stories of where the sons of God who fathered the Nephilim descended from. Around 30 ancient pagan temples have been found there. Some are the so-called high places associated with the worship of Baal. 
This mountain of the gods was the epicenter of pagan worship. This is Mount Hermon I'm talking about. And that continued through Jesus' day. It was a bad place as far as the Hebrews were concerned. Mount Hermon sat within the land known as Bashan, which was also called the land of the Rephaim. This land of Bashan closely associated with these, this race of giants, the Rephaim. Can we just push pause here before moving on? I need to stress the importance of understanding how evil this region of Bashan and Mount Hermon came to be known for. It was a demonic stronghold, and everybody knew it. Of course, the people that were worshiping the false gods didn't think they were worshiping demons. The Hebrews considered it an evil place. The region plays an important part in the New Testament. It's where Jesus casts out demons from people. This is the region where, for example, Jesus cast out the demons and they, he sent them into a herd of swine who went running, screaming down into the water. Probably some of the same demons who'd lived there since the time of the Nephilim. Mount Hermon is located a little bit north of another place of evil mentioned in the Bible they refer to as the Gates of Hell. That's where Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his disciples. And it was probably Mount Hermon, the location of one of the biggest spirit realm rebellions of all time, this sons of God coming down to mate with the daughters of men, that Jesus ascended up and was declared by Yahweh to be his own son. All the things that occurred in the region that we read of in the Bible are not detached stories, as many, even most, may have always thought of them. You know, like, over here is the little Bible story of Jesus casting out demons into a herd of swine, and over there is Peter and the disciples declaring Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God. And later, the story of the Mount Transfiguration, where Jesus ascends and his, his father recognizes Jesus as his son. You know, a series of stories, but they're not just these detached stories. They are all part of the story of Jesus showing up to the epicenter of evil on earth, the haunt of ancient demons and evil unseen spirits, and putting them all on notice that the Son of Yahweh had shown up to put things in order. The Messianic Psalm called the Psalm of the Cross, that's Psalm 22 and verse 13 in particular, in which Jesus is depicted on the cross, says that, quote, Many strong bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. They open their jaws against me like the lions and roar and maul. Unquote. Well, these bulls of Bashan may have been referring to people like the Roman soldiers who surrounded Jesus at his crucifixion. However, it's far more likely that this psalm is referring to the dark powers who also surrounded Jesus at the cross and looked on with great pleasure in anticipation of his death. Although King Og was said to be the last of the Rephaim or Anakim in the land, a few other Rephaim remained in the west, in Gaza. Here's what the book of Joshua, chapter 11, verses 21 to 23, says about that. And Joshua came at the time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, or excuse me, Hebron, Debir and Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, 
Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. It was only after the Anakim, or Rephaim, were cleared out, that the Israelis moved in and took possession of the land they were promised. Gaza is later where we find Goliath and his family. Goliath was from Gath, which was one of the three Philistine cities where the Anakim remained on the west coast of Israel. In addition to Goliath, David and his men killed four other giants, all who were from Gath. These four giants are described, including how they died in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. The introduction of the Nephilim played a large part in why God chose to wipe out humans with the flood. They accelerated the corruption of humans. Clearly, what the sons of God did in leaving their natural dwelling place, misusing their ability to transmutate into human form and mate with human women, was an act of evil rebellion. They created their own unnatural line of human descendants. Well, God did not want the product of the union of the heavenly host and human beings to survive in His creation. So it's no surprise that immediately following the passage concerning the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 comes the flood account. The purpose of the flood was not to wipe out the sons of God who spawned the Nephilim. They were eventually directly dealt with, apparently sometime after the flood, by God being bound up and imprisoned until the judgment. The purpose of the flood was to wipe out the bloodline of the Nephilim, as well as every other evil person on the face of the earth. Additionally, man's life expectancy after the flood was shortened from over 900 years to down to only 120 years, which still sounds like a long time to me. This mention of man's limited life expectancy might have been for a, a reason other than just giving us some more information. It may have been included in Moses' narrative to dispel myths creeping in among the Hebrews from other cultures that the men of renown, you know, like Greek gods, the descendants of the sons of God were in fact immortal. So his including that lifespan thing there was to dispel that myth of immortality amongst the sons of the gods. Well, the question often arises about why there were Nephilim on the earth after the flood, like King Og and Goliath and his brothers or cousins. If every human perished, it doesn't seem like that should be the case. Well, the simple answer is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. This passage tells us that the Nephilim existed both before and after those days, when or whenever the sons of God would have sex with the daughters of men. In other words, the sex act with human women was not an isolated instance before the flood. It happened before and after the flood. The sons of God were not wiped out by the flood. Humans were. Both the natural line and the unnatural line. But the sons of God were left to do it all over again. 
Whereas God used the flood to kill the initial round of Nephilim, He used the nation of Israel to bring about the divine genocide of the evil hybrid bloodline afterwards. It's the people who are descendants of the race of Nephilim and other names that they were known by, like Rephaim and Anakim, that were usually involved when God commanded Israel to utterly destroy every man, woman, and child. Why? Because their bloodline did not come from the man and woman humans that Yahweh created, Adam and Eve. It contained DNA from something other than Adam and Eve, who were the natural children of Yahweh. Yes, the people God had destroyed were also worshiping false gods, and that was not okay either. They may have even been worshiping the sons of God who procreated with their female ancestors. But God could not allow those bloodlines to survive. At the very least, He had to send a message to those residing in the heavenly realm. Those destroyed by the Hebrews mainly consisted of the tribes and people that inhabited the lands east of the Jordan River, from the Sinai in the south to Mount Hermon in the north. But there also remained Nephilim living in a different region amongst the Philistines up until David's day. It was then that David killed the most famous, Goliath. This was an incredibly significant event in the supernatural realm. Yahweh had again demonstrated to the heavenly host what happens when you step out of line. He tracked down and killed every being that was the product of the unnatural union between supernatural and natural beings. The Apostle Peter appears to be referring to the events of Genesis chapter 6 as he referred to the first book of Enoch. He did this in his letter 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 to 10. Listen to verse uh, 4 to 6 of that passage. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. Then he goes on to say, how much more will he judge us? You know, there, that all serves as an example. So Peter is pointing out how the fallen angels weren't even spared from judgment, and that how that serves as an example to others, the others being both human and spirit beings. Notice how uh, in verse 4 that I read, the angels that transgressed is sequentially directly before the flood event of Noah. Just the same as it occurs in Genesis 6, you have the judgment of angels or the transgression of angels and then the flood. And here we read Peter, the transgression of angels and then the flood. Peter appears to draw on the book of Enoch. He had been reading the book of Enoch. We can still do that today. And we can see that as a result of laying with human women, this is according to the book of Enoch. God sentences the transgressing angels to be bound hand and feet and thrown into the darkness underneath the hills of the earth. He commands his angels to split open the desert and throw one of the angels named Azazel, this is a transgressing angel, into the earth and cover him with jagged and sharp stones so that he can't see light. Azazel is to be kept there until the great day of judgment when he'll be hurled into the lake of fire. 2 Peter 2.10 
appears to be directly referring to the angels who went outside their authority and indulged in the lust of defiling passion, which forever denied them re-entry into heaven. If you ever wonder why more angelic beings didn't continue to rebel in the same way as the sons of God did, it's likely because of the way Yahweh dealt with these angels. In the book of Jude, Jude refers to the same passage as Peter does in the book of Enoch, which talks about the angels being bound up until Judgment Day. Jude more directly notes how the angels did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, which of course was the heavenly realm. This is Jude 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jude goes on to quote Enoch further in verse 14. This time he gives Enoch credit. This is how we know beyond any doubt that Jude was reading and familiar with the Enoch account, the same events that Genesis 6 records. Jude was convinced at least this part of the book of Enoch was written, or at least passed on, by the same Enoch who was the seventh generation to descend from Adam. Well, I want to talk a little bit about other documents which support the face value, literal interpretation of the story of the sons of God and the Nephilim. I've been a part of a culture of Christians that has said and believed, I don't care what anything else says, what any other book says. I just trust my Bible. I won't even read anything else. I have to say that I still agree with what's behind this belief that the Bible is the ultimate source of truth in written form. It's divine documentation. It gives us all we need to know regarding God's plan for the ages. No arguments from me. However, we live in an age where people argue over what the meaning of is is. It becomes necessary to determine what God is saying by understanding the context of the time and place the books of the Bible were written who the original intended audience was, and how they would have understood what was written. What they knew that we might not know without doing a deep dive into their culture. What I'm saying is, I don't believe that the Bible is a magic book that is self-revealing to any place and time. It takes work to understand it. Just like we have to uh, translate it from one language to another, we need to translate the culture from one culture to another. Well, the greatest value of biblical, of extra-biblical writings, such as the book of Enoch, is that they can give us an idea of the beliefs found in a culture during a particular period. Beyond that, trust in the documents, it's got to be earned. For example, with the Bible being the highest authority of truth, if something proves to disagree with Scripture, it's not to be trusted. It cannot ever be assumed that extra-biblical documents contain raw doctrinal truth. Giving such writings authority beyond just informing us of history or the opinions of ancient writers will lead to trouble. Anyone, for example, who mostly relies on what the Talmudic period Hebrew sages believed to be true needs to remind themselves of what those same sages thought of Jesus. They believed him to be a blasphemer and a false messiah. So, with this in mind, 
I'm going to talk a bit here about what others were writing during the days of the Bible to demonstrate how the ancients viewed the story of the Nephilim. The period between when the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament were written is called the Intertestamental Period. It overlaps with the Second Temple Period, in which Herod's temple in Jerusalem was constructed. It was during that period that several writings came to be known that are accepted at different levels as being canonical by different groups of Jews and Christians. The books of Enoch, the book of Giants, and the book of Jubilees are examples of Hebrew books that are known to exist since this period, which all record the story of the sons of God, which is found in Genesis 6. The version of the story in all those documents is the one which the angelic beings came down from heaven and laid with the daughter of men. Just like Genesis 6 says, The book of Jubilees is considered canonical, inspired by the Coptic Christian church. These are just other Jesus followers. Here's an excerpt from the book of Jubilees, which essentially blames the flood on the actions of the Nephilim. This is from Jubilees, chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. For owing to these three things came the flood upon the earth, namely, owing to the fornication wherein the watchers against the law of their ordinances went a-whoring after the daughters of men, and took themselves wives of all which they chose, and they made the beginning of uncleanness, and they begat sons of the Nephidim, and they were all unlike and they devoured one another. And the giant slew the Nephil, and the Nephil slew the Elcho, and the Elcho mankind, and one man another. And everyone sold himself to work iniquity and to shed much blood, and the earth was filled with iniquity. And after this they sinned against the beasts and the birds, and all that moved and walked on the earth. And much blood was shed on the earth, and every imagination and desire of men imagined vanity and evil continually. The book of Enoch is considered by many scholars to be a pseudographic intertestamental period writing. Yet some scholars believe it to have been produced by Enoch, the seventh generational descendant from Adam. Myself, after reading the commentaries, the book of Enoch itself, and how it's used and quoted in the New Testament, my own opinion is that some of the book of Enoch is based on actual pre-flood documentation, perhaps by Enoch himself. It's possible it was subsequently used by Moses as a reference regarding pre-flood events. However, during the intertestamental period, it was probably embellished and now contains some complete fabrications mixed in with actual history. Well, I trust the New Testament authors, the Apostle Peter, and Jude, that they knew the difference as they relied on parts of the book of Enoch as historical reference. It was widely known by and likely read by many first century Jews. Jesus probably read it. The Apostle Paul likely read it. They at least believed the book of Enoch contained enough factual information that they believed it to be credible and that others, their readers, would also trust it to the extent that they would not be laughed at when quoting it. There may be other parts of the book of Enoch that are also factual, which Peter and Jude didn't quote. As I said, the book of Enoch contains extra-biblical information regarding the sons of God coming down to mate with human women. It was not a story equating the men of renown with earthly, influential, normal men. 
It was a story that was consistent with the history of Israel, where God used the Israelites to wipe out the unnatural bloodline, who were the spawn of the rebellious sons of God. So briefly, the book of Enoch calls the heavenly beings the watchers. You just heard them referred to as the watchers, what I just read from in uh, the book of Jubilees. And it's said that 200 of them descended from Mount Hermon to have sex with human women. The leaders of the watchers are listed by name. After they commit the act and the women produce the Nephilim, the Nephilim grow up and engage in terrible evil acts and cause a lot of bloodshed, similar to what's written in the book of Jubilees. And while they do that, their fathers, the sons of God, are teaching people things like putting on makeup and a few different technologies, and they're reading the stars, engaging in astrology. Because of the great evil, the inhabitants of the earth call out to God in prayer. God hears their prayers and sentences one of them to be bound and buried until the judgment. The rest of the watchers ask Enoch to be an intermediary go-between for them with God and make an appeal to him on their behalf. Well, Enoch agreed to do so, but God showed no mercy. He sent Enoch back with a message that they will all never leave the earth again. They will watch their offspring die and then be bound up and thrown into darkness under the earth until Judgment Day. That's a quick rundown on what the book of Enoch has to say about this whole Nephilim business. Another writing which speaks of the event that led to the Nephilim is the Haggadah. The Haggadah consists of the Jewish Babylonian Aramaic writings that are mainly comprised of the Talmud and the Midrash. The Talmud is the central writing that contains practices and principles of rabbinic Judaism. It's the primary source of Jewish theology. The Midrash further interprets and places value on and comments on the Hebrew scriptures. One opinion expressed in the Midrash relates that when God started to regret creating man, that two angels named Shamakazai and Azael reminded God that they had warned him before he created man that there would be trouble. Then God replied, quote, I know that you would live on that world, that the evil inclination would rule you just as much as it controls man, but you would be even worse, unquote. But the angels persisted, saying, quote, Let us descend to the world of men, and we will show you how we will sanctify your name. And God said, Go down and dwell among them. Unquote. Well, as soon as they did, as God had predicted, their evil inclinations took over, and they sinned with the daughters of men. The other interpretations of the Genesis 6 passage contained in the Midrash began to change as its authors perceived that Christianity seemed to threaten the idea of only having one true God. They perceived Jesus as being a second God in the Christian's opinion. They attempted to try to protect monotheism by rejecting the literal interpretation of Genesis 6 as actual sons of God. They said that either the term Bene Elohim, sons of God, in that passage was referring to human princes or noblemen or judges who abused their powers and raped anyone they wanted, or that they were referring to people who were once on a spiritually very high level and then fell. 
You may remember I mentioned the Targum in the last episode. The Targum was originally an oral translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Aramaic in the Babylonian and post-Babylonian period. The Targum was not allowed to be written down until about the 3rd century. The Targum translators not only translated, but interpreted the scripture. There were many versions of the Targum. There were as many versions as there were translators. Most were never written down. Most that were, were lost. Since the Targum might be viewed as an official or at least informed opinion of what scriptures meant, it was tightly controlled once written down. Today, the Targum Ankalos is the only official recognized Targum by Hebrew scholars and rabbis. It's the earliest version dating back to the 3rd century AD. By that time, rabbinical influence had forbidden the translation of Genesis 6 to use the term Son of God. Because of this, giants are still giants, but the Targum Ankalos translates Sons of God in Genesis 6, 1-5 as the sons of the mighty. The Palestinian Targum doesn't call the angels sons of God. Rather, it calls them those who fell from heaven and the sons of the great, while it also adds the personal names of the fallen angels. The Palestinian Targum translates Genesis 6-4 in the following way. This may sound familiar from the Midrash I just talked about a little bit earlier. Shamkazai and Uziel who fell from heaven, were on the earth in those days. And also, after the sons of the great had gone in with the daughters of men, they bare to them. And these are they who called men who are of the world men of names. So the Hebrews were rejecting the idea that these are sons of God, you know, because Jesus is called the Son of God. They're rejecting the sons of God coming down in line with the daughters of men. But they didn't seem to have any problem with thinking of them in terms of angels or those who fell from heaven. So it's still consistent with the idea that angelic beings came down and lay with the daughters of men, just like Genesis 6 says. The Palestinian Targum also embellishes other details. For example, regarding the daughters of men, it says, quote, And the sons of the great saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and painted and curled, walking with revelation of the flesh, and with imaginations of wickedness, that they took them wives of all who pleased them. A late Midrash writing, still supporting the idea that Genesis 6 involved angelic beings, names the fallen angels Uzzah and Uziel. However, in another passage in the same document, it says that the Nephilim were merely descendants of Cain. They thought they were just a natural line of Cain, who had himself fallen. In the Talmud, it's written that the names Uzzah and Ezael are the names of the sons of God who sinned with the daughters of men, and thereby caused the world to sin during the generation of the flood. See, they're all directly attributing this whole incident at, uh, with the sons of God coming down and the Nephilim leading to the flood. That appears to have used the book of Enoch as a reference. So the Hebrews were drawing on the book of Enoch as a reference. Now the Zohar, I know I'm throwing a lot of different writings at you, but the Zohar is one of the main works in the Jewish mystical thought literature known as the Kabbalah. The Zohar also identifies the Nephilim 
as fallen angels. It even talks about how the angels can transform themselves into all kinds of shapes, and when they come down into this world, they clothe themselves with the garments of Earth's atmosphere and take on human form. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, all of that that happens. I'm just telling you what the ancients believed, these ancient authors believed during the period of time um, that the Bible was written, the books of the Bible were written. Well, Josephus, you know, first century historian Josephus, his full name was Titus Flavius Josephus, and he lived from 37 to 100 AD. He descended from the Jewish priestly line. He was born in Jerusalem. He was a Sadducee and became a Pharisee at the age of 19, likely while the Apostle Paul and Peter were still alive. His writing reflects perhaps the most objective historical first century documentation regarding how a trained Pharisee viewed chapter 6 of Genesis. This is what he wrote as a historian, not a religious leader. Now, while I say he's objective, uh, a lot of people are really critical of Josephus, including myself, because he was heavily influenced by uh, the Roman emperor that he was working for, essentially. He always painted him in a good light. But anyway, objective as far as not being a religious leader with some sort of uh, agenda. This is what Josephus wrote. For many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust, and despisers of all that was good, on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. But Noah was very uneasy at what they did, and being displeased at their conduct, persuaded them to change their dispositions and their acts for the better. But seeing that they did not yield to him, but were slaves to their wicked pleasures, he was afraid they would kill him, him together along with his wife and children, and those they had married. So he departed out of that land. That's from the book of Antiquities, chapter 3, verse 1, the first book of Antiquities. So notice in Josephus' writing that he pointed out that what the Nephilim did resembled the acts of the characters found in Greek mythology. Josephus also ties the Nephilim account in with Noah's flood. Well, if you spend much time studying theology and tracing why Christians believe many of the things we do in the absence of plain, literal instruction in the Bible, then you'll already know all about the writings of those who are referred to as the early Christian fathers or the early church fathers. Their writings are constantly cited as though these early Christians are being called on as witnesses to testify that they agree with someone today's doctrinal position. I, like others, do not look to the early post-New Testament Christians to define doctrine for me. Because those called church fathers believe something, does that make it true? Absolutely not. During the period they lived, some of the worst false teaching in church history was outpacing the teaching of truth. However, their writings again served to tell us what at least some early Christians believed. This is important here as we watch the Jews during the Talmudic period, once they had been expelled from Jerusalem, reject the literal interpretation of the Genesis 6 account in favor of a wording that did not include the sons of God. 
We wouldn't expect to see the writings of Christians, who by this time had separated from the Jews, follow suit. That is indeed what we read in these early Christian writings from the Church Fathers. So, the following are quotes from the most influential Christians of the first three centuries following the ascension of Jesus to heaven. It's really interesting to me to see the enormous difference between what these early Christians believed and what modern Christians believe who try and remove the supernatural from Scripture. So, around 160 A.D., Justin Martyr wrote, The angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begat children who were those who were called demons. A Christian theologian named Athenagoras wrote the following around 175 A.D. Some men are diligent in matters entrusted to them by you, and others are faithless. It's the same among the angels. They are free agents, being created that way by God, as you will observe. Some of them have continued in those things for which God had made them. They have remained over the things to which he had ordained them. But some outrage both the constitution of their nature and the oversight entrusted to them. These angels fell into impure love of virgins and were subjugated by the flesh. Those who were called giants were begotten from these lovers of virgins. Church historian Arrhenius wrote around 180 AD that in the days of Noah, he justly brought on the deluge for the purpose of extinguishing that most infamous race of men then existent, who could not bring forth fruit to God. For the angels who sinned had commingled with them. Clement of Alexandria around 195 AD wrote, An example of this are the angels who renounced the beauty of God for the beauty that fades, and so fell from heaven to the earth. Drawing on what's contained in the book of Enoch, Clement continued, The angels who had obtained superior rank, having sunk into pleasures, told the women the secrets that had come to their knowledge. Tertullian, around 198, wrote several things about these fallen angels. Among them was this, Those angels who invented jewelry, etc., are assigned under the condemnation to the penalty of death. They are the same angels who rushed from heaven on the daughters of men. Tertullian then goes on to cite other things these angels were responsible for, again, apparently citing information from the book of Enoch. Commandianus, around 240, wrote, Such was the beauty of women that it turned the angels aside. As a result, being contaminated, they could not return to heaven. From their sin, giants are said to have been born. Then Bardesanes wrote this around 222 A.D. The angels are likewise possessed of personal freedom. For we can be sure that if angels had not possessed personal freedom, they would not have consorted with the daughters of men, thereby sinning and falling from their places. It wasn't until Julius Africanus, around 245 AD, that we start to see a variation in what the early Christians were believing. He wrote this, In some copies of Scripture, I found the sons of God. What the Spirit means, in my opinion, is that the descendants of Seth are called the sons of God because of the righteous men and patriarchs who have sprung from them. A contemporary of Julius Africanus, named Cyprian, again citing information from the book of Enoch, wrote that, Sinning apostate angels put forth by their arts 
when lowered to the contagions of the earth, they forsook their heavenly vigor. They also taught women to paint the eyes with blackness drawn around them in a circle and to stain the cheeks with a deceitful red. The last one I'm going to mention is what Lactantius wrote around 313 AD. He seems to blame Satan for what happened. This is what he said. God, in his foresight, sent angels for the protection and improvement of the human race, lest the devil should either corrupt or destroy men through his subtlety. Since he had given these angels a free will, he admonished them above all things not to defile themselves with contamination from the earth and thus lose the dignity of their heavenly nature. However, while the angels lived among men, that most deceitful ruler of the earth, by his very association, gradually enticed them to vices and polluted them through sexual relations with women. Therefore, not being admitted into heaven because of the sins into which they had plunged themselves, they fell to the earth. The classic Orthodox interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 regarding the sons of God and the Nephilim held up among the Jews through the first century A.D. It had been translated into Greek in the Septuagint in the third century B.C. by 70 Hebrew scholars who had no problem with the term sons of God. In that account, the angelic sons of God came down and had sexual relations with the daughters of men and produced a hybrid race of humans called the Nephilim. During the intertestamental period, extra-biblical writings were produced that expanded on the story, further confirming the belief in the early Orthodox view. Then, based on the writings of Josephus, we know this is the view that was clearly still in place during the time of Jesus and his apostles in the first century. Then, moving into the Talmudic period, as Judaism decentralized, to combat what they perceived Christianity was doing to the belief in one God and to preserve Judaism's unique monotheistic beliefs, some Hebrew scholars, not all, began to interpret the Genesis 6 account differently. The idea of sons of God was no longer acceptable. Some were satisfied by simply rejecting that there are no other Elohim, but they were okay with the part of the story where fallen angels lay with human women as historically accurate. Others believed that the term Elohim represented human judges and lords. Still others believed that the sons of God represented humans who once held high moral standards, such as the line of Seth, but then fell. While the rabbis during the Talmudic period changed their interpretation of Genesis 6 from the time of the first century and attempted to control others' interpretations of it, the early Christians did not change their interpretation of it up until about the time Rome embraced Christianity in the fourth century. That's when some started to more regularly spiritualize when interpreting scripture. Today, Hebrew scholars remain heavily influenced by the post-diaspora teachings of the Talmudic period. The Orthodox Jewish stance is against the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. Additionally, Hebrew scholars are just as prone to being influenced by the Enlightenment period, the Age of Reason, as any Christian commentator or Bible scholar. 21st century reason and rationalism loves the non-literal interpretation of Genesis 6 because it removes the supernatural from it. So the Bible plainly gives us the story in Genesis 6, and we see the storyline of it continue from about 2242 B.C., about 1,200 years to the 11th century B.C., when David and his men killed the last of the Rephaim giants. 
We know that early Hebrews interpreted the story in its face value literal way, as did the early Christians. We also know that at least the Apostle Peter and Jude understood Scripture in the same way. Unfortunately, cancel culture is alive and well in the church. History, according to the Bible, must be arranged in order to fit with the influence of secular humanism and our scientific minds. What I'll briefly cover now are a few of the alternative interpretations of this passage and the reasoning behind them. I've already told you what the modern Jews think of this passage. The reason I'm doing this is because if you start to research this for yourself, and I think you should, you're going to immediately be confronted by the arguments of those who support such alternative interpretations. First, as I alluded to before, during the time of late antiquity, the 3rd to 8th century AD, or the overlapping rabbinic period, the 1st to 7th century AD, rabbis condemned the idea that Bene Elohim were angels. They suggested that they should be viewed as judges or lords. They believed monotheism to be under attack by the growing sect of what they considered to be a cult, the Christians. One commentary says that a very influential 2nd century rabbi would curse anyone who translated the term Bene Elohim as the sons of God. So the majority of the medieval Hebrew Bible commentators generally rejected the literal or mythological-sounding interpretation and asserted that those who took whatever women they wanted mentioned in Genesis 6 were human. Some variant opinions about the sons of God were also offered, that their distinction was not only social but physical and moral, and that the offspring were called Nephilim because they fell short of their father's morals. To fall is another part of the meaning of Nephilim. The most popular effort to humanize and take the supernatural out of this passage is that the sons of God represent the very human but God-fearing line that descended through Adam's son Seth, and the daughters of men represented by the human line that descended from Cain, who had been cursed and marked for killing his brother Abel. There are large problems with this theory. The first of which is that it's not what the passage plainly says. The meaning of the words have to be taken as something they are not. The Hebrew language contained other words to convey what this story says if that were to be true. Second, there's no reason to think that the DNA of these two human lines, the one from Seth and the other from Cain, were different in any unnatural way that would have brought about a different race of people a race referred to for hundreds of years to follow as giants. Cain and Seth were brothers. Next, how godly of an action would it have been for the sons of God to essentially rape and impregnate whatever women they wanted to? This line of Seth was still the line of Abraham. It was Enoch, Methuselah, Noah's father Lamech, and Noah who were alive at that time. If this theory is true then Abraham came from a fallen line. Another modern interpretation, which ignores how ancient readers understood this passage, is that the Nephilim represented a separation of classes within humanity. The men of renown, or Nephilim, were simply the ruling class. They were kings and judges, etc. Besides all the same reasons I gave opposing the theory that the line of Seth supposedly were the sons of God, this theory ignores what follows in the Old Testament, which refers to stories surrounding the Nephilim and their descendants. 
The Nephilim were not famous for being kings and rulers, but for being a race of very tall, nasty, strong people who were the enemies of Israel. Here's the question that must be answered if any of those theories placing human men in the role as the sons of God are true. How remarkable is it that human men, even well-known human men, were taking women as their wives? Is that a story worth mentioning by Moses when he was conveying the essentials of Hebrew history? I don't think so. Well, I'm not done talking about the rebellion of the sons of God which produced the race of giants called the Nephilim, but I've been talking about this for close to an hour, and I need to give you a break. Next time, I'll pick it up with the common arguments people make from the New Testament scripture against a literal interpretation of Genesis 6. For now, I hope I've established for you that the worldview of both Christians and Jews during the times that the Bible was being written is that there were heavenly beings that descended from heaven and that had the capability of mating with human women. This was an incredibly evil act that Yahweh severely dealt with. Understanding this story sheds light on the rest of the Old Testament, and it provides background to what will happen in the New Testament. So, until the next episode, may God bless you, and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. (laughs) 